Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 18th, 2013. Okay, you know, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, it's going to be all over the map. (laughs) And I think that's kind of the idea. Purposely potpourri, you know, something like that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and this is to be expected. And the reason why it's to be expected is because the Bible warns us about false teachers, false apostles, false prophets, false Christ, false gospels. It, it's it's as if God the Holy Spirit knew the future. <laughs> this should not surprise anybody. Uh, God knows everything. And so this is one of the reasons, if you would, why the, the, the Bible, especially the New Testament, spends such an inordinate amount of time warning you warning you about the wolves in sheep's clothing and things like that. In fact, I I would uh, point you to a classic passage on this topic, if you would. That would be uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Fantastic passage that warns us. Paul here in uh, 2 Corinthians is uh, taking issue with the folks there in Corinth for listening to the super apostles, the so-called super apostles. They weren't really super, and they weren't really apostles, and so it's kind of a... Uh, weird thing to, for them to be calling themselves the uh, super apostles, but no, it's kind of a classic case of when Paul would plant a church, he would preach the gospel, he would take the converts, train them in sound doctrine, drive them into God's word, give them a great foundation uh, of of sound doctrine and what the scriptures are really about, uh, feed them Christ's words, all of that stuff, and then no sooner would he leave to go plant another church, well, these uh, agents of the devil would circle around, come in, and they would start, uh, well, talking down the Apostle Paul and say, oh, he's not really an apostle. He's really, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so the Apostle Paul 
writing to the church in Corinth, Second uh, Corinthians, at least. Uh, now, what we know from church history is probably four letters written to uh, the church at Corinth um, from the Apostle Paul. Two of them, uh, luckily, are not, not being circulated to this day, although people have speculated as to what's inside of those other two letters based upon what Paul uh, writes in First and Second Corinthians that we have. Well, that's not for our consumption. God, the Holy Spirit, did not see fit to have that survive or those letters to be circulated throughout the general church. So, but in this particular case, we have a general letter for all of us to be paying attention to, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. It's apostolic. It's biblical, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. It's authoritative. And listen to what he says. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, he says, Now I wish you, you folks in Corinth, would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the, uh, than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now, now notice here, um, <clears throat> there is no such thing as another Jesus, another spirit, or another gospel. Okay, These are false Jesuses, uh, false spirits, and false gospels, okay? And Paul here is, uh, you know, actually chastising the folks there in Corinth for putting up with these false Jesuses, false spirits, and false gospels. He shouldn't be doing that because they're being deceived in the same way that Eve was deceived by the cunning of the serpent. That's the idea. And do you think that today in the 21st century that somehow we're immune from this type of stuff? Yeah, not on your life. I mean, Satan hasn't ceased working, if you would. He's very, very, very busy. And he's basically engaging in the same kind of shenanigans that he was engaging in back then today. Uh, But here's the difference. Um, People today... If you say, oh, well, that's not in accord with sound doctrine, their retort is, hater, you're a hater, you live in your mom's basement, you blogger, and that's what they do, And rather than saying, oh, yeah, you're right, the scriptures did uh, do say that, Um, yeah, I need to repent, they don't go that route, instead they just accuse you of being a hater. Anyway, we continue, though, so he says, uh, now, if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, well, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these so-called super-apostles, even though I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you and in all things. Yeah, get that. Okay, did you catch that little part there about the Apostle Paul saying he's unskilled in his public speaking abilities? Mm-hmm, true. You're thinking, how is that possible? He's literally one of the greatest Christian missionaries who ever walked the earth. I mean, that he's the church planter extraordinaire. Yeah, I know, but he'd be the first person to tell you it wasn't by his own strength and power, but it was the Holy Spirit doing the work. You see, yeah. <clears throat> Moses, what was he? He was a stutterer, right? Yeah, think about that. Anyway, We continue verse 7. He says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? 
I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone uh, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Oh, look, the Apostle Paul didn't require the church at Corinth to sow a seed offering into his ministry. Mm -hmm. So as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not uh, because I do not love you. God knows that I do love you. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms that we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Jesus, this was a theme that Christ gave us, talking about wolves and sheep's clothing. Paul here in 2 Corinthians tells us that Satan's agents disguise themselves as angels of light and apostles and things like that. And so you're going, well, wow, yeah. You all remember the movie Terminator? No, I'm dating myself really badly here. But what was the, you know, what was the the, the evil uh, villain in Terminator? It was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And what was Arnold Schwarzenegger? He was a Terminator. He was a robot. But the unique thing about this killer robot is that he had human skin on him. And uh, you know the way the um, the story turns, you know these terminators, uh, you know they would infiltrate the ranks of the human beings who survived the apocalypse. So it's a post uh, nuclear apocalypse. Uh, you know, world and the machines have risen up. They're the ones who press the button to destroy humanity. And now what vestiges of humanity exist? Well, they're being overrun by these agents, these agent robots that look exactly like human beings and they're hard to detect, right? Well, that you see that little theme there? Um, that little literary theme in the movie is actually kind of hijacked, if you would, from a reality that exists today in the church. Satan's agents pose as angels of light, as as pastors, as teachers, as visionary leaders and things like that. So you're going, well, how are we to detect them if they're disguising themselves in this way? Simple. Jesus said a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And he wasn't talking about their ability to put on the front of having a moral life. He's talking about their teaching. He's talking about their doctrine. You will always, 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 always be able to spot a false teacher, somebody who is purposely disguising himself to appear as a Christian pastor, um, but in reality is an agent of the devil. You will always find them out by their doctrine, by their theology, by how they handle God's word. And folks, this isn't a game. What's at stake? Well, what's at stake is your very soul, the soul of your neighbor, the soul of your children, you know, the souls of people that you love and care for. That's what's at stake. Satan is playing for keeps. And so these terminators they come in 
disguised as workers of Christ. And what do they do? They terminate, they destroy, they assassinate sound biblical teaching, the preaching of Christ and him crucified for our sins, and they replace the true Jesus with a false Jesus. They replace the true Holy Spirit with a false Holy Spirit. They replace the true gospel with a false gospel. And when you call them on it, their response isn't, oh, I need to repent. You're right. God's word says this. No, you are a hater. Oh, yeah, you you people out there who would dare to say that, that I'm wrong for preaching a gospel that doesn't involve penal substitution. Well, everybody knows that's just, well, subs, uh, you know, atonement theory, and you can have any theory on the atonement you want. You know, things like that. Well, when somebody does that, they, they reveal themselves for what they are an agent of the devil, somebody who's disguising themselves as a worker of Christ, but they are deceitful workmen. And um, as Paul points out, their end will correspond to their deeds. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. As I've pointed out, today's episode is going to kind of be all over the map, and that's really the point. That's really the whole point. So, let in fact, let's talk about what we're going to do today. We've got um <laughs> we've got a Roman Catholic update. Um this came across the news yesterday. Uh, the Pope uh is offering time off of purgatory if you follow Pope Francis's tweets on Twitter. Oh, how kind of him. Um <laughs> we've got a Joshua Mills update from the Patricia King gang and I can't make heads or tails of what it is that he's uh, saying. We've got an emergent church update from a female pastorate, uh, Lillian Daniels. Um, where, you know, uh, Tony Jones of the Emergent Church sent out a link to this YouTube video put out by Lillian uh, where um, she says, nowhere does Jesus say stand your ground. It's a fascinating argument. And this is kind of one of the popular arguments put out there by uh, liberals and emergents and postmodern types. And the, the argument kind of goes like this. Well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. So therefore, we because he never said anything, we can assume that he the reason why he did it is he didn't say anything because it wasn't important. And the reason why I didn't think it was important is because Jesus isn't into that pharisaical religious stuff. And, and that means that, you know, you, you know, anything goes and you can bless same sex marriage and stuff like that. That's how the argument goes. And by the way, it's a lame argument. Okay. And here's the reason why. Okay. Are you ready? What is the Bible? And you're going, um, what do you mean? Well, answer it's, it's the word of God, right? Right. So how much of Scripture is God-breathed? All of it. Okay, so if all of Scripture is God-breathed from the Genesis 1-1, Bereshit bara Elohim, you know, going in the beginning God created, right? Uh, so going to Genesis 1-1 all the way to the last page of the Book of Maps, if you have a paper Bible, um, you know, all of that is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, right? Right, okay? So how many gods are there? One God. So all of scripture is theonoustos. It is God-breathed. It is the word of God. In fact, every book of the Bible, every letter, every prophetic utterance has one common author throughout all of scripture, despite the different human authors, and that is God, the Holy Spirit. Okay, now here's the question I have for you. Okay, who's Jesus? Mm-hmm. He's God in human flesh. So if Jesus is God in human flesh, 
does Jesus need to repeat himself regarding something he said, like maybe back in Leviticus or Exodus? No, he doesn't need to repeat himself. So the claim that, oh, well, Jesus never said anything uh, against same-sex marriage, he didn't need to uh, when he was on earth because he had already done that in the book of Leviticus. And yeah, remember, all scriptures God breathed, and Jesus is God in human flesh. And uh, so the idea, do you think that Jesus, the Son of God, is uh, at odds with God, the Holy Spirit? (laughs) No, not at all. So, yeah, it's kind of lame argument, but that you know, this is the stuff that they that uh, liberals and emergents throw out there, and a lot of people repeat these arguments as if you know, thinking that oh, oh, this is so great, we're gonna punch conservatives in the nose with this. Those people who actually believe the Bible's the word of God, those fundamentalists, those haters, those bloggers, we're gonna punch them in the nose, and they, this is the kind of clever argument that uh, they, they come up with. So we'll be taking a look at that, and then we might have an opportunity to uh, listen to a little bit of a rant by an atheist at uh, Cal State Berkeley um, to kind of give you a flavor of what's coming as far as persecution of Christians in the United States. Yeah, stay tuned for that one. If I don't get to it today, I'll try to get to it tomorrow. And then in hour number two, uh, we're going to be going back to uh, CB Glades, Church by the Glades. I think we should just call it CB Glades because yeah, I don't like calling it a church because I don't see anything that makes it a church. Uh, but uh, we'll be listening to a sermon by uh, David Hughes from his sermon series entitled BYOB. Yeah, that's the name of the sermon series. And uh, yeah, I, I won't spoil it for you. There's some interesting stuff that's talked about in the sermon. But it's just, it's one of these things where, um, again, how can you tell somebody is a false teacher in the church? You listen to their doctrine. You listen to what they're preaching and teaching. If they're not rightly handling God's word, if they're basically engaging in in hermeneutical nonsense and non-lucid thinking or just flat out just making stuff up um or they can't they actually don't know what the bible's about and so when it ta- when they talk they just seem like they're bloviating we'll find word there um well then um chances are they're an agent of the devil somebody who's actually disguised themselves as a worker of Christ um, and they're not doing the work of Christ. They're not preaching Christ. They're not preaching sound doctrine. They're engaging in something different. And so that's what we're looking for. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Uh, please assume the crash position. All proper warnings, of course, uh, you've got them. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into it. Here we go. Yeah, that's right. Time for a Roman Catholic Church update. That's right. Our story today regarding the Roman Catholic Church comes to us via The Guardian in the UK. The headline reads, Vatican offers time off of purgatory to followers of Pope Francis's tweets. Papal court handling pardons for sins says contrite Catholics may win indulgences by following World Youth Day on Twitter. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but didn't Jesus die for the sins of the whole world already? Yeah, that's what scripture says. Um, 
See, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? That's uh, John 1. And then you got 1 John 2, uh, that he's the propitiation for our sins, but not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Um, I don't recall in Scripture there being any requirement that you follow a pope on social media in order to earn forgiveness and pardon of sins. I thought that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. Yeah, I, I detect evil here. I'm, I feel a disturbance in theology. <clears throat> Let me just kill the music here. <laughs> Uh, so let me read the story. This is by Tom uh, Kington, uh, who is, works for the Guardian in the, uh, in the UK. Uh, Guardian in the UK. He actually is their Rome correspondent. <clears throat> in his latest attempt to keep up with the times, the Vatican has married one of its oldest traditions to the world of social media by offering indulgences to followers of Pope Francis's tweets. The church granted indulgences um, reduce the time Catholics believe they will have to spend in purgatory after they have confessed and been absolved of their sins. The remissions uh, got a bad name in the Middle Ages because unscrupulous churchmen sold them for large sums of money, but now indulgences are being applied to the 21st century. But a senior Vatican official warned web-serving Catholics that indulgences still require a dose of old-fashioned faith and that... Paradise was not just a few mouse clicks away. Ah, shucks, that's just terrible. Quote, you can't obtain indulgences like getting a coffee from a vending machine. Archbishop Claudio Maria Selli, head of the Pontifical Council for Social Communication, told the Italian daily uh, uh, Corriere della Sera, I guess that's the name of it. Indulgences these days are granted to those who carry out certain tasks, such as Climbing the sacred steps in Rome, reportedly uh, brought from Pontius Pilate's house after Jesus scaled them before his crucifixion, a feat that earns believers seven years off of purgatory. But attendance at events such as Catholic World Youth Day in Rio de Janeiro, a week-long event starting on the 22nd of July, can also win an indulgence. Mindful of the faithful who cannot afford to fly to Brazil, the Vatican's sacred apostolic penitentiary, a court which handles the forgiveness of sins, has also extended the privilege to those following the rites and pious exercises of the event on television, radio, and through social media. That includes following Twitter, said a source at the penitentiary, referring to Pope Francis's Twitter account, which has gathered 7 million followers, but you must be following the event live. It's not as if you can get an indulgence by chanting it on the internet. It's a decree the penitentiary said that getting an indulgence would hinge on the beneficiary having previously confessed and being truly penitent and contrite. Praying while following events in Rio online would need to be carried out with requisite devotion, it suggested. Apart from the papal Twitter account, the Vatican has launched an online news portal supported by an app, a Facebook page, and it plans to use online social networking site Pinterest. <clears throat> what really counts is that the tweets that Pope the Pope sends from Brazil or the photos of the Catholic World Youth Day that go on Pinterest produce authentic spiritual fruit in the hearts of everyone, said uh, Chelly. 
Yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, no, there will be no authentic spiritual fruit produced in the hearts of anyone um, following the Pope on Twitter during World Youth Day. Um, <laughs> especially, especially, especially if their desire is to earn the forgiveness of sins and earn an, indulge, an indulgence for time off of purgatory, uh, which doesn't even exist. This is not a biblical doctrine. Um, what did the Apostle Paul write? Oh, yeah, I remember. The Apostle Paul talking talking about the dearly departed saints. To, here, here's what he said. Um, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. There it is. The, you know, the, the nowhere in the New Testament will you see the doctrine of purgatory um, at all. Nowhere. It's not there. It doesn't exist. And so um, this idea that you can, that the Pope can somehow dispense, you know, you know, hey, we can get time off of good for good behavior off of purgatory, and that means follow the Pope on social media and all this kind of stuff. This is not a fruit of sound doctrine. This is satanic. This is absolutely. This has nothing to do with biblical Christianity, and com- and completely teaches a different gospel, the gospel of works, the gospel that you earn, the gospel that you jump through particular hoops and you've earned the forgiveness of sins. Presto blamo, you, you got to be contrite enough and follow the Pope on Twitter and then you can have some time off of purgatory. I think it was Martin Luther who pointed out the fact that if the Pope really were the vicar of Christ, then out of the goodness of his heart, he would just use his papal authority to dispense with years in purgatory and just grant everybody freedom from purgatory and just let them skip right over that and go right to heaven. <clears throat> you, you get what I'm saying. But uh, the, the point here is is that um, this isn't Christianity, and I find it odd, find it very odd that you know men like Rick Warren and others um, are trying to find a way to unite all of Christianity back together with Rome. And yet they continue to show their true colors, and their true colors show that uh, what their colors are has nothing to do with sound biblical doctrine. The Pope is none other than an agent of the devil disguised in apostolic garb, uh, disguised under the guise of an apostolic office that he doesn't truly have because there is no head of the church other than Jesus Christ. And the one who would usurp Christ's authority and to claim his spot in the church as the head of the church, well, as the reformers pointed out, that's none other than Antichrist. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We have a Patricia King gang update via Joshua Mills, and then we have an emergent church update, something about nowhere does Jesus say stand your ground, weird stuff like that. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind. purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premier 
year, Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend, then join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993, so we're one of the oldest biblical worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. All right, we're back. Uh, Warning, only Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and when false Christs and antichrists arise, they point you to a false gospel and claim the right to take time off of purgatory, a place that doesn't exist. Just a reminder, fighting for the faith, this is listener-supported radio. I really mean that. We truly cannot continue doing what we're doing without your help. Of course, if uh, if you'd like to help us, which we really would encourage you to do so that we can keep doing what we're doing, stay on the air, do the discernment work, and teach you how to rightly open up the scriptures and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God, then what you do is you partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. We continue now <clears throat> with a, some more non-lucid thinking, if you would, um, by doing this. So, um, Joshua Mills of the Patricia King Gang, xpmedia.com, was recently the featured speaker at the Eagle Worldwide Ministries Unifying Glory Summer Camp. <clears throat> and um, just recently posted his... Um, a sermon, a lesson, um, plenary. I don't know what this is. Um, and <laughs> after listening to it, by the way, it's called into the future. Okay. So we're going to go into the future with uh, Joshua Mills, but don't get excited. It's like, like that's not going to happen in the front part of this, but as you're listening to this, see if you can make heads or tails of this and see if this makes as much sense to you as like the whole doctrine of purgatory and buying an indulgence in order to get time off of it. <clears throat> Here's um, Joshua Mills. The Lord, I want you to open up with me. Let's go to Second Chronicles tonight. This is the Unifying Glory Summer Camp Meeting. And I just know, in my spirit, I just know that God is going to do something so special here this summer. Something that has never been before under this tent. Something that has... You just know this. Okay. ...never happened. Things that have never been said or declared or prophesied that there's going to be such a wonderful, wonderful touch of God this summer um, in the camp meeting. I, I feel so blessed to be here for the opening week of what God's about to do. I want to get in. I, I want to have my hands in God's cookie jar where, whenever... Yeah, I bet you want to have your hands in the cookie jar. He opens it. Amen. I mean, I, I want to be. <laughs> yeah, out of the heart, you know, the spirit, you know, the mouth speaks, you know. I don't want to be left out. I want another cookie. Hallelujah. I mean, <laughs> some people say, well, I've seen that before. I've, 
I've experienced that before. I've heard that before. Listen, what God's about to release, you've never had before. You've never seen before. What God's about to release sounds like he's going to release a virus or something. I don't know if I want to have that. You've never done it before. And it might look a little bit the same, but there's a whole lot more in it than you understand. There's a whole lot more than you realize. And it's so important to discern the moments, the times, the seasons when God brings you into places of opportunity. God leads you to people that are divine appointments in your life, divine connections for that which God wants to do in the next level or in the next season or the next move that he's bringing you into. It's so important to discern those moments and give yourself fully to them. When you give yourself... Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you all know what he's talking about? I, I feel like I'm watching a fish flopping around on the bottom of a boat trying to get back into the water. Unto the glory, you begin to realize that the glory is giving itself to you even more than, than you understand it before. The, uh, the glory is giving itself to me even more than I even understood before. Um, what? more that you open up to the glory realm, the more that the realm opens up to you, not because it wasn't available before, yeah. but now you're beginning to get the revelation or connect with the vision, what God's showing. Uh-huh. And when you can connect with it, you can receive of what's flowing. Amen. So I got to connect to the vision to receive what's flowing. Cause if I connect to it more than it'll reconnect back to the, what again? The Bible says that my people perish for lack of vision or lack of... Yeah, that ver- proverb, by the way, my people uh, you know, perish for lack of vision. It's not that they perish because they don't lack um, you know, a direct divine vision from God. It's, it's prophetic vision, uh, but blessed is he who keeps the Torah. So it's talking about the written word of God there. That's one of favorite verses misused by folks like um, Joshua Mills and the XP Media, Patricia King Gang. Knowledge, and so if you get the vision or you get the knowledge or you connect with what God is revealing yeah. in this day, suddenly you can make that divine connection or, or begin to... F- connect with what God is revealing today. I'm connecting with what God has revealed in his written word. I can trust that. Uh, touch that place of impartation. Allow it to flow into your... Touch the place of impartation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Four plus two equals purple banana. I'm not getting any of this. I have to change everything, to stir things up, to, to rearrange things, move things, and, uh-huh. and even clear out those things that have been holding you back and, and, and open up doors that will set you free. Amen? Uh, what am I supposed to say amen to? I mean, this is the closest thing that I have heard to speaking in tongues while actually speaking English that I've ever heard. I mean, uh, yeah, there's words coming out of your mouth, but none of them make a lick of sense. Hallelujah. And so I believe we're going into something really, really wonderful together this summer. Hallelujah. Okay. Second Chronicles chapter five. I want to look here at second Chronicles chapter five. I'm glad he has a Bible open, but I have very little confidence that it's actually going to be rightly handled. Verse 13, verse 13. Okay. One verse from second Chronicles five. Got it. I love this, this scripture so much that individual one all by itself. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of my favorites in the Bible. I'm sure it is because you got your hand in the cookie jar being a, a praise praiser and a worshiper of God. And that's really what we're all called to do. It's not even about having a microphone or the ability to play an instrument. It's about a heart attitude. Amen. Uh, Second Chronicles five, verse 13 says the trumpeters and the singers, they joined in unison as with one voice. Someone say one voice. This is speaking of unity. 
And um, <clears throat> what? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> this is just crazy. Okay. Second Chronicles chapter five. Second Chronicles chapter five. Um, you, you know what we're talking about here? Well, this is not a passage about unity. Um, let me read to you starting at verse one. So you kind of get what's going on here in second Chronicles chapter five. Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. Aha, Solomon's temple is being built. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark and they brought up the ark, the tent of meeting and the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day." There was nothing in the ark except for the two tablets that Moses had put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, uh, Asaph, Haman, uh, Jeduthun, and their sons, kinsmen arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in the praise to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The house of the Lord was filled with the cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Fantastic passage, by the way. Um, it's weird that um, all of that important stuff is to like what's going on in this passage. Um, yeah, this is not important to Joshua Mills. As we continue, though. When the Bible speaks of unity, it's not necessarily saying that everybody has to be the same, do the same, look the same, act the same, sound the same. But it's speaking of harmony, which is really a musical term. Uh, this passage isn't about unity. It's about the dedication of Solomon's temple. And what it means is you might have an expression that you bring to the kingdom that nobody else has. And I might have an expression that I bring to the kingdom that nobody else has. And this has nothing to do with any expression that you feel like you might be bringing to the kingdom. And, and you know, your sister, your brother, your mother, your father might have an expression of worship that they bring to the kingdom of God that nobody else has. But when we come together... In one focus, one purpose, recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the one that we're, we're, our minds are focused on. He's the one that our hearts are focused on. When we come together and we bring our sounds together and we bring our, our, 
our giftings and our talents and our uniqueness together, suddenly it becomes a beautiful harmony where now it's not just one note singing out, but now it's a whole crowd of beautiful sounds, but it doesn't sound like a muddled mess. Harmony sounds really nice. Amen. And uh, that's what the Bible is speaking about. It's talking about them coming together. As uh, no, it's talking about the dedication of Solomon's temple. That's why they came together. One voice bringing what they had and giving it to God. And they said this, they, they gave praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. And they raised their voices in praise to the Lord. And they sang this, they said, he is good and his love endures Forever. Yeah, that's one of the Psalms that David wrote. Yeah. Uh, this is wonderful. Something about that I've learned about worship is that it's different than praise. Praise is declaring what he's done, what he's doing, what he's about to do. But in worship, we declare who he is. Okay. Um, where are you making that distinction from? In worship, we focus upon him. And they were focusing upon the Lord, the things of God, the things of the heavens. And they were saying, he is good. Hallelujah. We can join together in this tent tonight and say, God is good. I may have had a really bad day. You may have had a really bad week. We all may have had the worst month we ever had, but we can join together in the tent and say, he is good. Hallelujah. He is good. My facts are changing, but the truth remains the same forever and ever. He, my facts are changing, but the truth remains the same. Uh, what is good in the midst of my life? He is good. In the midst of my mess, he is good. In the middle of your stuff, he is good. And his mercy endures forever. Hallelujah. His love, it endures forever. And his love is working something for me that nothing else can work. His love is causing miracles to move into my life. The uh -huh. Causing miracles to move into your life. Uh -huh. Hopefully they're using you, Hall. More that I connect with him and understand the greatness of his love. Wherever there's great love, there's always great miracles. Love is causing the miracle realm to be poured into your life. Love is... What? Love is causing the miracle realm to be poured into my life. What are you talking about? Second Chronicles chapter 5 is about the dedication of Solomon's temple. Causing the miracle realm to be poured into your family situations. Love is causing the miracle realm to touch your body, your physical health, and beginning to bring forth a change. The love of God is causing the miracles of God to flow. God, you are good, and your love, it endures forever. Hallelujah. Uh, no, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, I'm afraid. I don't know what God's bringing me into. Don't be afraid. You know, every time that God shows up in an angelic encounter, different times when God shows up with supernatural events, many times the first thing the Lord will speak to the people who are having these encounters in the Bible, he says, be not afraid. Do not fear. Why? There's a tendency to be afraid of something that we don't understand. What? If we've never been there before, we become fearful of it because we don't know exactly what it looks like on the other side. Um, yeah, maybe it has something to do with the fact that they're holy and we're not. You might be in the middle of 
some of the craziest stuff going on in your life right now, and there might be. You have no idea. I mean, just listening to you, that's some of the craziest stuff I've ever experienced in my life. A whole lot of fear trying to grip you. But I love that the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. Oh. Yeah, well, what is with all these verses ripped out of context and just you know thrown in here as if that's where they belong? Oh. Fear, you're not welcome here because the love of God is changing me. The love of God is transforming things. The love of God is working miracles for me. And the love of God is actually causing... Yeah, I defy you to outline this uh, sermon. Faith to arise. The Bible says that faith works by love. Whoa. When the love... What verse says that? God shows up, faith begins to arise and fear begins to dissipate. Hallelujah. Uh, What? Whoa. So if you've been feeling fearful about some stuff, just begin to get more and more in love with Jesus. Just begin to get more and more in love with his word. Just begin to fall in love with his spirit all over again. Just begin to fall in love with the divine presence of his glory. Just begin to fall in love with who he is. And as you fall in love with him all over, none of this is biblical. And you're going to find all those fears begin to disappear. Spheres disappear. Yeah. Okay. Somebody say my fear is on its way out the door. And my miracle's on its way in. Hallelujah. Yeah. My fear is out the door. My miracle's on its way in. I yeah, don't think so. Moving along. Sounds of the Emergent Postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by T- Doug Paget with Tony Jones playing second fiddle. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, Peter Rollins on oboe over there. Now, as you can tell, they've freed themselves from the limiting definitions of modernist notes and are just being led by the spirit in this rendition of uh, Strauss's Also Sprock Zarathustra. Yeah, that's quite the powerhouse of musical notage there. Uh, Okay, that's uh, to uh, announce the arrival of today's emergent speaker, um, uh, the pastrix Lillian Daniels, mm -hmm, a first congregational church. Um, Let's just put it this way. She's a liberal pastrix. And uh, Doug, uh, not Doug Patrick, but Tony Jones of the emergent church just really thought this particular part of her sermon from this past Sunday was the bee's knees and, and wanted to make sure that everybody on that followed him on Facebook and Twitter had the opportunity to hear it. And so without any further ado, here is Pastrix Lillian Daniels and her rant entitled, Nowhere Does Jesus Say Stand to Your Ground? Nowhere in scripture does Jesus say stand your ground. You can file that away with other statements that he did not make, like my mother was a virgin. And you- 
yeah, um, okay, um, but Scripture says that Jesus' mother was a virgin. Um, he Just because Jesus himself didn't say, hey, my mom's a virgin doesn't mean that she wasn't because Scripture actually said that she is. You have to believe that I'm the Son of God to go to heaven. Uh, well, actually, that Jesus did say that. Um, in fact, it was a little stronger than that. Um, let me find it for you. Um, yep, here it is, uh, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 24. He's having this little battle with the... Um, uh, the Jews and the Pharisees, and Jesus says this. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And see that whole I am thing there, the ego in me? Jesus is actually using the divine name for himself from uh, Exodus chapter 3. Remember when Moses uh, had that little meeting with God that was uh, talking to him out of the burning bush? And Moses asked, you know, God, what's your name? And he said, I am. Yeah, so Jesus there in 8.24 says, unless you believe that I am, <clears throat> basically saying that he's God, you will die in your sin. So I, apparently, I don't, this Pastrix Lillian Daniels must have failed seminary or something. We continue. Jesus said quite the opposite. And in fact, when we use statements like stand our ground, you can't help but think of other examples in the Bible where we are reminded by Jesus that our foundation, our ground is shaky. That we think we are standing on solid ground, but it is all shaky and falling apart. And uh, Did you read uh, the Bible there? Um, because that Jesus was talking about the person who doesn't, who listens to his words and doesn't put them into practice as somebody who builds on sandy ground or shaky ground there. Did you care to even, you know, read the Bible before you decided to preach about it, Lillian? The solid ground, the idea that you could stand your ground and be justified in violence is to stand on shaky ground. My hope is with the donkeys. Because you see, Balaam ended up dying the way he lived. He ends up, in fact, going back to the king after he's weaseled his way out of his agreement with God. And he actually goes back and says to the king, okay, when I came here before, I wasn't allowed to tell you anything that God hadn't told me, but now I can. And so let's pit this one group against the other. And the big secret I have to tell you, king, is this. You don't need me to curse the Israelite people. You can get them to curse themselves. And he says, how do I do that? And he says, well, what you do is you're going to um, tempt them with the food of unclean animals. And you're going to send out prostitutes. And you're going to get them to act in ways that do not glorify God. And in doing so, they're going to curse themselves. When we stand on shaky ground, when we justify violence, when we keep silent, when we pit one group of people against another, we're following the way of Balaam. And Balaam died the way he lived, by the sword, in yet another armed conflict that did not bring peace. My hope for the future comes from 
Waltrina and the youth at General Synod. It comes from all of you. It comes from the donkeys who say, well, I may just be the only one and nobody expects me to talk and nobody's going to listen to what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. My hope goes to the young people around that table at Root and Branch. When I counted them, there were 24 people there and 12 of them were connected to this church. My hope is with the donkeys. Stand up against violence. Speak out when the defenseless are beaten. Do not stand by and keep silent. Be courageous. Speak the truth. Be an ass. Now, now, that was kind of ironic. She said to speak the truth. Um... (laughs) Weird, because she really wasn't. By the way, you know, the Bible does talk about standing your ground. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present dark... uh, darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, uh, done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness as the shoes of your feet. Yeah, notice weird, the Apostle Paul here uses the uh, armor of the violent Roman Empire as the uh, armor of God. And yet um, Lillian here says that we need to stand and say the truth. Let's let her finish her thought. Do not stand by and keep silent. Be courageous. Speak the truth. Be an ass. And on that final count, I think you've uh, succeeded. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. A sermon that I'm not exactly sure has a point, or, well, when it finally gets to it, it's not a good one. Stay tuned on them as it will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio.
Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Heading back down to Church by the Glades. Yeah, sermon series named BYOB. Yeah, because that's equated with, you know, Christianity. Um, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, sermon comes to us via Church by the Glades, CB Glades for short, uh, out there in Coral Springs, Florida. David Hughes presiding. The name of the sermon series is BYOB. Obviously, that means bring your own Bible. And the name of the sermon we will be listening to is entitled, The Measure of the Man in the Mirror. And as I listen to this BYOB sermon, you'll, as you listen to it too, you'll be, um, you'll be scratching your head at particular points in it. Um, he, uh, for this particular service, he created a man cave. And that you know, and there was two guys from each service who were allowed to watch the service from the man cave in these recliners while eating pork rinds, and it doesn't make any sense. And the sermon itself, I, I it, well, 
you just kind of hang on because it's for the longest time it seems like this is a sermon without a point. That's the best way I can describe it. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is uh, David Hughes of CB Glades and his sermon from the BYOB sermon series entitled The Measure of the Man in the Mirror. Uh, Here we go. Welcome to another creative and encouraging teaching by Pastor David Hughes, lead pastor at Church... Yeah, creative, all right. Church by the Glades. Uh, Faithful to God's Word? Yeah, no. For more information on Church by the Glades, including directions and service times, please visit us at www.cbglades.com. Apparently, BYOB, the B in this sermon, uh, is, is bring your own bike, you know, motorcycle. <laughs> wow. Look, look, in some church in America. Because, you know, I really enjoy going into church and inhaling the exhaust from 20 motorcycles on the church's stage, revving their engines inside of the building. Because that, you know... Carbon monoxide is my favorite thing to inhale while at church. And tranquil, and that's great. We celebrate all different kinds of Christ in our churches, all different kinds of styles. But at Church by the Glades, we like it loud and proud. Woo! What a... What a rev up! Not only that, I don't like to have to bring foam earplugs to church. I like to have no earplugs in my ears while at church. The holy horsepower in your life brings some spiritual octane to your worship experience. So welcome to B-Y-O-B, which right now means bring your own bike. Get up my bikers back here, my bikers back here. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Oh, that's too fun. That's too fun. Give it up for those bikers. Go celebrate the bikers, man. BYOB. I've just been backstage with a big fat smile on my face, knowing that was about to happen. And if you're here and you're a guest, you're probably thinking, wow, what did I get myself into? Hey, we think God's house should be a house of encouragement, a house of great joy, a house of inspiration. A house that is high energy. Shouldn't be holy or reverential, yeah. Hey, we think God's house should be a house of encouragement. We think, we think. A house of great joy, a house of inspiration, a house that is high energy, a house where you receive hope, and those commodities are sadly in short supply. So we're honored you're here. I'm David Hughes, one of the pastors. Welcome to week one, a three-week talk called BYO. B, and actually it stands for bring your own bro, bring your own bro. And so gentlemen, we love the ladies of this house. We love the ladies of Church by the Glades. Wait, wait, guys, put your hands together, celebrate that. If you're blessed, have a beautiful, discerning woman with you. I see the coaches with me. The coach, good to have guests in town, man. Celebrate that beautiful, guys, celebrate that woman. Don't be quiet, celebrate that woman. You're with a beautiful, discerning woman. We love the ladies. But without apology, on Father's Day, it's about the men. It's all about the brothers today. No, guys, all the men, all the men, whether you're a father or not, all the men of all ages, want all the men to stand up, all the men in the house to stand up. Other campus, want you to stand up, Tampa, stand up. Give it up for the men. Give it up for your brothers. Give it up, man, for the men. 
Because there are, there are some men, there are some men that this Sunday morning, they're vegging on the couch. Some guys goofing off on the golf course. Some are fishing. Oh my gosh, man, they're missing out on the spiritual synergy of the faith fusion called the Church of Jesus Christ. But you have come to this house. You have led, led loved ones to this house. So I- uh, the, the spiritual synergy of the faith fusion of the... What? So I honor the men of Church by the Glade. So proud of you guys. So proud of you guys. Hey, the text today for week one, BYOB, the text today is 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. I want the men and the men only in a loud voice to repeat that text. 1 Samuel chapter 30. That was good. What's up, brothers in the man cave? Man cave up there. Man cave. I love the man cave. Oh, and you guys... Eating the good stuff, carb load, that's awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> Got to have a little fun on Father's Day. That'd be a fun all the time. But a great text today. And- yeah, men in the, man, in the man cave eating pork rinds and stuff. Uh, obviously, it's a male theme, Father's Day. And I, I think the topic's a, a, an important topic. And I want church to be really, really powerful, profound, but very, very personal. And I know there's a bunch of folks in this room. We'll have... I don't know, 6,000 people or so for the weekend. But I want to pretend it's just like you and me sipping Starbucks together, having a, you know, a one-to-one conversation, or actually just take me out of it. You and God, just being very honest, very, very honest about your life, how you appraise your life. Because the topic today is worth, worth, you know, value. There's certain things in our culture that we esteem Differently than others, certain things we value, other things we kind of devalue. You know, we assess worth right off the bat. We size things up. Example, uh, if you're looking for transportation, want to get to, from point A to point B and look good while it happens, maybe you would choose a Harley Davidson Screaming Eagle, a CVO model. I mean, that's a nice ride right there. Now, if you do that, speaking of worth, it's going to set you back about thirty-five dollars to $40,000. Now, if you're going, oh my gosh, that's, that's more than I can afford. I know it's a valuable machine, but I'm not sure I can afford that much. Okay, I have other options for you in two-wheel transportation. You might run like this. <laughs> run like this. Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? This is more affordable. Why? It's, it's worth less. Why? And this is actually substantial. You know, one has greater engineering than the other. But other times, we assess value or worth uh, based on more arbitrary criteria. Example, any baseball fans in the house? Any baseball fans in the house? Got some baseball fans in the house. If you're a baseball fan and you collect uh, baseball cards, baseball cards, you know, you can get a pack of baseball cards. Each card, as far as the worth of value, a little less than 20 cents. On the other hand, if you're like digging through the basement and you find this card, a 1909 Hannes Wagner, at auction, this card went for $2.1 million. Worth, worth. How about this baseball? Baseball, you want to play a game of catch with your son. Fathers, you want to take your son out, play a little catch with your son. And third to me, it's my boy right there, Charlie. Nice, nice, nice job. You want to play? I mean, that's, that's priceless. That's awesome to play a little catch with your boy right there. It's great to play catch, you know. But a baseball will set you back, what, five bucks? On the other hand, functionality, exactly the same thing. But if you have an older baseball, a vintage baseball signed by this guy, in mint condition, 150000 Dollars, Very different value. Very different, you know, worth as we assess worth. How about this? That's the sporty guys. How about the nerdy brothers? Do I have any nerdy brothers in the house? Come on, nerdy brothers. Own it. Own it. I got some nerdy brothers. Comic books. Comic books. Comic books are fun. 
If you're a comic book collector, you buy a new comic book. You know, they're smaller, more streamlined these days. I'm not tracking with him. What is his point exactly in this sermon at this point? Going to set you back a little less than $4. On the other hand, if you're digging through the back of your comic book collection in your closet and you find this, you find an Action Comic Edition 1, 1938 June, uh, first time the Man of Steel ever shows up. This went at auction for $2.16 million. Talking about worth, talking about worth, but my conversation with you today is not going to be about, about the worth of a, a baseball or a comic book or a motorcycle. I want to talk about your sense of self, your sense of self-worth. Do you uh, evaluate yourself? Are you successful? How do you measure up as a person? In fact, when is that time in your day you're really honest about yourself? Maybe it's right before you fall asleep. Maybe, you know, you pause for prayer. Maybe it's in the morning. Maybe in the morning, you know, as you, you have a moment in the morning. Man, in the morning I wake up before my family. I get myself ready, have my time with the Lord. And maybe as I look in the mirror, maybe you have that moment that you kind of, you know, you measure. You measure the man in the mirror. Maybe it's in the morning while you're, you know, you're brushing your teeth. You have that moment, you just kind of think about your life, you ponder, you know, am I getting everything out of life that I had hoped? Am I successful? Now, what is, say water there, say water, you got to conserve. You know, what am I worth as a person? In fact, this thing about that idea, worth, say the word worth. worth. Louder, one, two, three. Worth. Now, as I view my life, what is my worth as a person? Am I succeeding? What is my value? I think a lot of men in our culture, they think about the idea of worth. They use four different criteria, four W's, to kind of evaluate their worth, their sense of self. Uh, one is this. Ever try to write backwards? I'm mildly dyslexic, so actually for me it's not that hard. I write backwards all the time. But for a lot of guys, their sense of work comes from their work. Their work. Say the word work. One, two, three. Yeah, you know, when a brother asks you, so what do you do? How do you always respond to that question? No one ever says, no one ever says, you know, what do you do? Uh, I'm a committed husband. You never respond, what do you do? I'm a dedicated dad. I'm an imperfect but impassioned Christ follower. You never say that. When someone asks you, what do you do? You do what? You jump to the job. You tell them the work that you do. You say, well, I'm an accountant. I'm an auto tech. Uh, I am a corporate attorney who specializes in contract negotiations. And know what we do most times? When you hear someone's vocation, you value them based on their vocation. You, you size people up based on their job, don't you? Come on, be honest. Somebody says, I'm a sanitation engineer versus, versus I'm, I'm a neurosurgeon. You might assess their worth differently. So work, a lot of men, for it's a career, it's the work. But what if you're out of work right now? You want to work, but you don't have work. Or what if the work you're doing isn't working as well as it used to? And back in the early 2000s, man, I was knocking it dead, but now it's a struggle. The market has been fluid. Or, or, or maybe you found that career, you found that work, but you're not satisfied, even professionally. But a lot what was the point you had people open up their Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30? I don't think that passage is about self-worth. A lot of men, their worth flows from the work. Here's another criteria. A lot of guys are all about this. The wins. Say the word wins. One, two, three. Competitive. Do I have any competitive people? Put your hands together if you're a competitive person. 
Women and men, a lot of competitive people. But some of you brothers, you are so about the wins. You are so hyper competitive. Oh my, I mean, you normally roll to church by the glades 35 minutes late. You come late for the late service. But today, because there's a competition, first one to get the heather in the foyer gets the man cave. You pounded on your neighbor's door at 5.30 a.m. to wake up your bro. You are so so competitive, my brother, when your six-year-old daughter says, Daddy, let's play Candyland. Your first thought is, she's going down, right? (laughs) Right? So a lot of us, we derive our sense of self. You know, are we being successful? You know, are we worth something, whether or not we're winning? Are we winning in the competition? In fact, for a lot of us, the workplace is the context of our competition. It's all about, you know, you know, scoring the next client, closing the deal, taking out the other guy. In fact, a lot of us guys, we live vicariously through the wins of others. Sports fans, man, I'm a hardcore sports fan. And I, in fact, any Miami Heat fans in the house right now? Okay. I thought, I thought, thought you might say yes to that. Uh, Miami Heat fans. Well, listen, I'm a Heat fan too, but right now, right now, the Heat, they are wearing me out. Because one game, one game, man, they're world beaters, man. They're the big three world champions. They're awesome. One game. The next game, they play like a middle school girls team. And then you guys kind of find your joy fluctuating with the team. You find, you know, I'm up when they win. I'm just devastated when they're losing. I'm so tired of letting guys who dribble basketballs control my joy. I don't even know them. Wins. How about this one? Another W. The wallets. Oh, our society, our definition of success is what? The wallet. When you say someone is successful, you don't mean they have intrinsic worth or values of a human being. You typically mean they got money. They got a big, fat wallet, man. They have assets. They have a diversified and large portfolio. When, you know, they have a nice car, live in a great neighborhood. They got the bling, bling, ka-ching, ka-ching. Nothing wrong with money. Money's fine. But, you know, money can only bring a certain degree of satisfaction. Can I show you something the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5? Now, you stay in 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel 30. But in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, someone said this. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And someone's going, what broke butt person said that? I mean, money is incredible. Money, you know, what penniless prophet made that pronouncement? Guess what? That was said by Solomon who by an honest account, he was probably the richest guy who ever lived. And he said, if you're all about the wallet, if that is your hope of satisfaction, it's going to leave you flat. The work, the wins, the wallet, our sense of worth or value comes from that. But here's one, just guys, to be honest and be really raw with you. For a lot of guys, is this final W. Is the women. It's, it's the women. It's, it's, it's what woman are you with? Or uh, there's single people here, single here, you know, both sexes, that if you're not with somebody, not dating somebody, you feel like a little less valuable, less worthy as a person. You know, sometimes that's... A- oh, you could just see what's coming. Um, so he's going to take a story about David from 1 Samuel chapter 30, and he's going to turn it into something about David and his feelings of self-worth regarding his work, his wins, his wallets, and his women. Oh, no. 
Oh, no, this is going to be horrifying. Sexual conquest for some guys. You know, I scored the ladies. I must be, uh, you know, right, right. These four things, these four things are criteria our world uses sometimes to evaluate the idea of worth. Say the word worth. Worth. I hope, though these can be great things, nothing wrong with wealth or wins or having a great job, work, or, I mean, I'm blessed. I have a wonderful woman I share my life with. I'm blessed wherever my head, that's, that's a huge blessing. But these things, while they're good things and blessed things, we should not define our sense of self or our self-worth or esteem based on these things. I think our sense of worth should not be attached to the work, the wins, or the wallet, or even the woman in your life. It should be attached to the word of God and what God says, my brother, about you. And if you fully define your sense of self by way of God's word, you'll find that sense of worth or value amazingly high and rock solid and steady. Today we're in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel. What? 1 Samuel what? 1 Samuel 30. I'm going to work kind of verse by verse through the text. And it's, it's a chapter in the story of the life of David. And David's one of those remarkable biblical heroes. And by any criteria or standard, David is a hyper-successful person. I mean, David has it going on. No matter the measurement you use, hard to argue. David, a young man that came out of obscurity, he is the youngest son uh, of a farmer, a nomadic farmer from Bethlehem. That's way out in the sticks. Any, any country boys in the house? Any people from a small town? All right. He's from a small town. He's from the country. His dad, literally in society, was kind of a nobody. Ends up being not just the king of Israel, but the benchmark, the best king they ever had till King Jesus. Now, his rise to success kind of hinged, hinged on one event. Uh, in fact, there was a story about well, I could tell you the story, but actually a cool thing happened here recently. We had an eminent young Bible scholar come to visit us at Church by the Glades, this young theologian. And he took the time, came to my house, and told me the story of King David with such articulation, I shot a video. So I want to go ahead and pass off this part of the story to the Bible scholar that told me the story uh, okay, of King Zane, David. Okay, Zane, tell me a Bible story. Once at a time, there was Kiger, and he said, eat the sheep, and David was the shepherd boy. And God helped him get his sheep back. And David was a king. And he shot the Goliath with a seesaw. And the Goliath fell down. What did he shoot Goliath with? The seesaw. And what And Goliath fell down? Yeah. And was David happy? Yeah, and he was a king. And he was a king. All right, all right. I am a dad, and I love showing off my three kids. But that was not the point or purpose of that video. I want to actually show off our Kid Stuff ministry, because I didn't teach Zane that story. Nor did Lisa. He came back from Kid Stuff. That's our kids' ministry. <laughs> I didn't teach him that story. Yeah, that's right. We wouldn't have expected you to do that. That would require you to actually, you know, properly teach the Bible. We here from, you know, kindergarten through, uh, through fifth grade. And the, the leaders there had taught him that narrative, that story of this young hero. And I just want to say to the fathers and the mothers in the house, if you're a parent, it is so challenging to raise healthy kids. I mean, mentally healthy, emotionally, with values today. So in the middle of this sermon, BYOB sermon, we're going to get a commercial for their kids' ministry. <sighs> Today, but there's a plethora of people here, tremendously talented staff, and a whole bunch of volunteers, and they'll partner with you. 
And if you don't have your kids involved in kids stuff or our middle school or high school ministry, man, you are missing out on a blessing of people that you would admire and want to speak into the lives of your children. And they will align with you. So take advantage, man. Immerse your kids in the ministry of this church. So Zane learned that by going to Kids Stuff, and he actually goes to Glades Christian Academy here too. So I'm so grateful for all you volunteers and you staff that you helped me raise my kids. But he did a pretty good job with the story there. He had, he had like a tiger and a lion confused. That's the basics of David because in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David is revealed. David takes out Goliath of Gath, approximately 10 feet tall. You know, an experienced warrior takes him out with that slingshot. And in that moment, David is discovered. In that moment, he becomes a, you know, air quotes, overnight success. Isn't it funny? No one's really an overnight success. I mean, typically that's a misnomer. Uh, what happened with David? He was discovered in a moment, but he spent years getting ready for that. I mean, he spent years getting ready for that rumble. He'd been, you know, shepherding his father's sheep in isolation. But all that time, he was practicing with his weapons. He was practicing with his sling. He was learning valued lessons like accountability, responsibility. The Bible says Jane was right. With rudimentary weapons, he'd already killed wild animals. So David was very accomplished when he met Goliath. He'd prepared himself for that moment. But after that moment, success. After that moment, everyone thought him to be a highly valued worthy person. In fact, coming back to these, these W's, he had it going on. After chapter 17 in the victory. Uh, you make it sound like, you know, David has just came out of nowhere. Um, uh, that's not exactly right. Um, already by this time when he shows up in the story, he's the anointed king of Israel. Um, but there's one small problem, and that is that there is a living king who has who is also the king of Israel, and God is the one who commanded Samuel to anoint David, king of Israel, because of Saul's disobedience. So now we're, this is, a, this is supposedly a sermon about you discovering your self-worth by looking at how David valued his self-worth, his work, his wins, his wallets, and his women. And in First Samuel 30, really, it's about self-worth. Really? Victory over Goliath. As far as his work, he goes to work for the king. He becomes a commander of the king's army, a very highly uh, respected position, and wins. I mean, he goes from victory unto victory over the enemies of Israel. He, he wins the fame, they're writing songs about him, the fame and the wealth that comes with success. And then finally, women. I mean, again, David was a country. I mean, the way he's telling the story, you would think that, you know, King David is like, you know, the MVP of of the National League Baseball, you know, or something. He came out of nowhere and conquered, you know, like he's the next Beckham or, you know, O.J. Simpson. You know, you get what I'm saying here. You know, zero to hero because of his conquests and things like that, you know, via you know, some kind of sports star metaphor. Um, David grew up in ancient Israel, um, in the theocracy of Israel, Um Comparing him to some kind of modern-day successful American jet-setter type, it, the, the contextualization of the story is actually causing the important theological stuff to be poured out and poured to the ground. Country boy. David's family had no prestige. David, David's from the sticks. He's, he's a righteous redneck. He's the bumpkin from Bethlehem. And this country boy marries a princess. I mean, literally the daughter of the king. I mean, he has it going on, man. He is soaring to success. He has all this worth. But ever notice that life can turn in a minute? 
Like you just have like a bad chapter, bad page, bad moment. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you make a bad decision or a bunch of bad decisions and you kind of sabotage your own success. Or maybe it's something you know, viral. It's a systemic thing. The, the, the economy. So you think that that whole Bathsheba thing was David sabotaging his success? Economy changes, you know, the global economy, or, or in David's day, it might be a famine or an invasion, right? This big thing beyond your ability to control, but it affects you personally. Uh, or maybe, maybe somebody else. They make a bad decision, and they victimize or jack you. And all of a sudden, all these things you worked so hard to accomplish and to gain, all those things are stolen from you in a minute. If you read from, say, like chapter 18, right before chapter 30, you see that very thing happens to David. David is one of Saul, King Saul's best soldiers. But David has a bad boss. Anybody here ever work for a bad boss? Anybody work for a bad? Maybe BYOB, you brought your bad boss with you. It's good. Um, David worked for a psycho supervisor. And Saul, though David has been true to Saul and courageous for Saul and won victories. You might want to mention, you know, the demons that were oppressing Saul. You know, stuff like that. Um... Again, he's noticed that uh, David Hughes here, he's not actually preaching the text. He's putting his own spin on it, summarizing the story, you know, highlighting certain things, omitting other stuff. Um, we're not really getting a correct, accurate understanding of what's going on in the narrative regarding King David at all. For Saul and very, very loyal to Saul. Saul is paranoid and delusional, and he's threatened by David, and more than once he tries to assassinate David. And these four things are quickly taken from David. His, his work, his work, oh my gosh, he, he's fired. He's fired from his job in the, the, he, as a soldier. Anybody here ever get fired? You ever get fired? Raise your hand, be proud. Come on. I got canned for my very first job. Thank you very much, honest people. Like three people got fired. You all lying in church. <laughs> but David, they wanted to fire him with real fire. I mean, he wanted, wanted to kill him. The win- so David got fired from his job. I thought he fled for his life because Saul wanted to kill him. Wins, they stop, no victories. David is forced to flee from Jerusalem as an outlaw. He goes from a celebrated celebrity to a wanted man. He flees the capital city, goes to the wilderness region of southern Judea. Uh, as far as his wallet, he leaves everything behind. All his money, all his wealth, all his possessions. He literally has to escape with a shirt on his back. Has to borrow a sword and bum bread so he doesn't starve to death. And then as far as the woman in his life, you know, he was married to Michal, a princess, but Saul takes away his wife, gives her to another man. So David's alone in a cave in the wilderness going, and you read the Psalms, they're so candid, they're so poignant. David will write from that position in his life, he'll say, God, what happened? God, what is the deal? God, I thought you loved me. God, I thought you're all powerful. God, how could these bad things happen to me? I was trying to be righteous and innocent. I'm not perfect, but God, I'm legit when it comes to my love. Why? You know, God is cool with your honest why questions. Uh, can you read some of those Psalms here? I'm familiar with a lot of the Psalms here. Um, and the way you summarize them isn't exactly the point of those Psalms. If you're in pain, if you've been jacked, if you've been betrayed, you can ask, he may give you the answer, he may not. But David asked these questions. But in the chapters after that, David is still a God-called guy. He's still a God-loved guy. He's still a talented guy, a courageous guy, has personal charisma. And even there as a, a wanted outlaw, other marginalized men, other bros come to David. They come to support David and rally around David. Other victimized people gather David. And by the time we get to chapter 30, there's a small army of men that are now loyal to David. And David is slowly building back his life. 
mean, his life kind of went here, then way down here. And David is kind of building back his life. He has new work. He doesn't work for kings. So he got a new job and he's building back his life. This is absurd. This is not a faithful telling of David's story at all. Saul, but he has a new boss. He's, he's still a soldier. He's still fighting battles. He's racking up some victories. He's gained back a degree of wealth. Now, not as much as before, but, uh, you know, he's getting some possessions. Uh, he's remarried to a nice woman named Abigail. So he's not where he used to be. He's not living in the... Uh, okay, so poor, poor, you know, poor David. You know, he was at work and his boss went a little crazy trying to kill him. He had to flee for his life. He left all his money behind him. Um, he, he fled from, you know, and he lost his marriage and, 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 you know, and he was an outcast. He went from being a celebrated, uh, you know, Victor kind of like sports, you know, hero kind of guy. Everybody loved him. They were writing articles about him in, uh, you know, in Israel illustrated. And, uh, now he has to flee for his life. And so he needs to rebuild his life. And so he gets remarried, finds a new boss. This is ridiculous this is preposterous this is not what the story of david is about and if you don't believe me go back into first samuel starting at what chapter 16 17 no don't even start there go back to you know to the beginning where saul shows up okay no just read all of first samuel get the entire context and you'll see this is not a story about self-worth and rebuilding your life because you lost your job and stuff. This is ridiculous. In the palace, but he has a home. He has some things, has family. So he's not here. He's, he's kind of here. He's building it all back. You know, it's, it's the new reality in the market. His life is here, but then it happens again. In chapter 30, everything he values once again is stolen from him. And if David's sense of self-worth was based on these things, David has a huge problem. Okay, we're finally there. We're finally there. Thank you for your patience. We're finally Where in 1 Samuel at all does it ever talk about David and his feelings of self-worth? Finally in this great passage I want to study with you. Bible's here in the, in the, in the, in the bathroom. Here we go. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. 1 Samuel, guys, chapter 30, verse 1. David's living in a place called Ziglag. Say Ziglag. It's like the word. It's kind of fun to say Ziglag. Uh, David and his men reached Ziglag. They've been on a three-day march on the third day. Now the Amalekites, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and and Ziglag and attacked Ziglag and burned it. Who are the Amalekites? Uh, They're the bad guys. They're the haters in this narrative. They are a pagan people group. They are are violent. They are racist. They're haters? Are they bloggers? They are cruel. In fact, let me sum it up. They're traffickers. They're human traffickers. They made their, their living off the slave trade. And so they attacked David's village, his hometown of Ziglag. And the reason why? They burned it and taken captive, verse 2, the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them. Why? They're trying to get slaves. They carried them off, went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziglag, they found it destroyed by fire. Their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Can you imagine just how distraught? Imagine someone taking away your family, taking away your love. Oh, yeah. You know, poor David. I mean, he'd lost everything when he lost his job, you know, and then he lost his marriage. So he had to you know, rebuild his life and he got remarried and found a new boss. And then this happened. Oh, this the ultimate setback. It's like insult to injury. 
poor David. I mean, his self-worth was probably really microscopic at this point. Forget burning your home and taking your possessions. So David and his men wept aloud till they had no strength left to weep. Verse 5. David's two wives. Uh-oh. Two wives. Just for the math, guys, that's one wife too many, right? Right? That's one wife too many. One wife. His, his two wives have been captured. Ahonam of Jezreel and Abigail. Wait, two, two, two wives. Can I just be this honest with the guys? These things here are all good things. If you have a job, if you're winning, if you have a wallet that's fat, if you have a good woman in your life. But these good things can also become temptations. If you overly value or obsess or write, I mean, you can become a workaholic or overly competitive or materialistic. But all men tend to battle with at least one of these W's. And for David, know what his, his one he battled with? Women. You read the narrative of David. He's a godly guy. He's a good guy. But he tends to make bad decisions when it comes to women. Not just one. Not just a big bad Bathsheba decision. He tends to make it like right here. Because the Bible, I know they had weird marriages back in the Old Testament. But the Bible is very clear that God wanted his kings and future kings to marry one woman. And David's married to how many women? Math problem. David habitually made bad decisions when it came to women. And there's some brother going, yeah, yeah, bad women. Them bad women will mess you up every time. Them bad, them Jezebels, them Jezebels. No, no, I didn't say bad women. I said bad decisions in regards to women. And so he has two wives and they, they get kidnapped too. Verse six, verse six. I propose verse six, as David's life had kind of this flow, they very successful and then Saul turns on him and he's a fugitive and now he's building everything back. I propose that verse six is the lowest point in David's life, period. You know why? He, he lost his work and his wallet and he lost the wins before, even his wife. But Have you read the entire story of David? I mean, probably the low point for him, or at least lower than this, would be when his son Absalom tried to uh, take over the throne and have his father killed. And then Absalom lost his life in the coup. That was, a, that was probably the lower point than this. Look what happens here, verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men, the men, his soldiers, the men that fought, the men were talking of stoning him. Why? They're, they're distraught. Each one was bitter in spirit because his sons and daughters had been so. See, here's why I say it's the worst. David had lost everything before, but this time his typically loyal bros want to kill him. So in verse 6, man, he's lost all this. His life is as far down as he So what happens? What happens is we'll continue to, to read in a moment. You're about to see a turn in the story, a turn in the story, a turn in the story. That's remarkable. But I'll say this. One mistake the Amalekites made, they messed with the wrong brother. I mean, David was bad. He was a bad, he's bad. He was bad, right? I know you have this image of this. Some of you all think about David. David. Oh, David was the shepherd boy king. And you can see David in your mind's eye, like this feminine dude wearing a bathrobe there in the pasture, playing a harp, right, with little lambs around him. Shepherd boy, kind of this anemic guy. No! David was a warrior. David had killed, killed a lion and a bear with a club and a slingshot as a teenager. That is bad. You with me? Remember the story after he kills Goliath, after he kills this giant, he takes the giant's sword and his spear and then cuts off the giant's head for a souvenir? I mean, you go to a brother's house, go to his house, and there on the wall he has like a fish, he has a big tarpon, and he has a sailfish, and he has like a deer. Then over the fireplace has a giant's decapitated head. 
that guy's bad. That brother's bad. Don't mess with him. I mean, they messed with the wrong, the Amalekites. I mean, this is Liam Neeson in the Taken movie. Yeah, you're spending more time on your laugh lines than you are in actually properly handling this text exegetically. Sad. And guys, listen, this is a very important thing. We're about to jump. We're about to jump. Not yet. We're about to jump to verse 8. Look at your Bible. About to jump to verse 8. But if you are a man, listen, if you're a man and someone comes and they violate you and they take everything and everyone you hold dear. If people come and they take your family, I think the decision, the next thing you need to do as a man, a man's decision is very clear. You grab your sword, you mount your horse, you go get your family, right? Man, you spit, you get angry. You, that's a decision, man's decision. I'm going to fight for my family. You are not going to take my children. They're going to take, you fight, right? That's the obvious decision. But listen, listen. Cool thing David does. Verse 8. Though David is hurt and distressed and he's angry and he's impassioned and, you know, he, man, I'm going to get these Amalekites because he's a warrior. Look what happens in verse 8. Very key, guys. Press in verse 8. Has all this emotion. It says, verse 8. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue the raiding party? Will I overtake? David stops in this moment when the decision... As a man, as a husband, as a, seems very, very clear, and he prays. Before he charges off, hits his knees. That's important, guys, because sometimes we're highly emotional. We'll make that impulsive decision, that wrath. It seems kind of obvious, but later on, you're like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. David hits his knees, even though the decision, I think, is an obvious, an obvious decision. Right? We know when we don't know what to do, when the decision is a difficult one, we need discernment, we should be on our knees. And God, do I go this way or that way? God, I'm not sure. God, this decision is very hard. But when it seems obvious, we don't bother to pray. I think we should pray about all things. When the stakes are high. I mean, don't need to pray, God, should I have pancakes or waffles today? That's okay. God doesn't care about that too much. Right? But when the stakes are high, you better pray. David's thinking, I need to get my family. I need to go wage a war. I need to take out these amounts. You know what's weird is that Jesus says to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So God does really care about what you're eating. Um, and he's the one who provides it for you. Malachites, these haters, they have victimized people I love. They're slaves. God, what they're going to do to my family is not going to be pretty. But he stops and he prays. God, God, shall I pursue the raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, God answered. Get ready. You will certainly overtake them and and succeed in the relational rescue. Succeed. Loudly say the word succeed. Succeed. You're gonna you're gonna have worth, value. You're gonna succeed. Now here is the cool thing about this verse. No, no, no. The text does not say you're gonna have worth. You're gonna have value. God said that they would have success in regaining their family members who had been taken captive. Nothing in the text says anything about worth and value. You put that into the text. That's called eisegesis. It doesn't belong there. Yeah, he's been psychologically uh, engaging in eisegesis here. So we call that psychogesis. Um, yeah, that's what this is, an example of psychogesis. Verse. In this moment, the way I see this verse, David kind of steps out of his own personal agenda. Yeah, because- wait a second. got to back this up. That was an important statement. Listen again. Now, here is the cool thing about this verse. In this moment, the way I see this verse. The way I see this verse. 
Yeah, see, um, David Hughes uh, obviously spent a lot of time doing those Bible studies where they go around the room sharing what this verse means to them. By the way, that's not how you discover what the Bible says or teaches. It doesn't matter what it says to you or what you think it means or whatever. The question is, what does it mean? And it's an objective meaning, and it's a singular meaning, not multiple, 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 multiple meanings based upon multiple, multiple people's experience with the text. That's postmodernism, and you, when you start engaging in that, words don't have any meaning anymore. David kind of steps out of his own personal agenda because he asks God for God's wisdom and direction. And once God gives him the direction, it's not just the promise of success and victory. He is now, listen, important dynamic, he is now not just David doing David's own thing. He's now God's man on God's mission. That's why the promise of success is not attached to David's passion. His- oh, so David at this point, because he hit his knee, that means prayed, um, that means that now he is purpose-driven. I'm going to beat my head against something. His intellect, his desire, but the fact he sought the Lord and God said, guess what? This is my plan and I'll make my plan come to pass. I promise you my success. You're my man on my mission. You guys see the difference? You see the difference? Yeah. Now, David, he went from being a really popular dude who lost his job because of his crazy boss and lost his wife and everything to now he's purpose driven. Oh, wow. He must be saved. I like that. Like half you guys like. Pray about all things, even when it seems obvious. And then you walk in the power of God. Due to time, I'll let you read for homework the verses in between. Read verse 9 to verse 15. And basically what happens is now he's God's man on God's mission. They're exhausted already. In fact, they're so tired that about a third of David's men got to stop. They can't quit and pursue. David continues, the slave traders, a slave gets away. An Egyptian, he tells David where the bad guys are. We'll jump to verse 16. Verse 16 is just kind of a fun verse. Interesting verse, no extra charge. Verse 16. It says, He, the slave, led David down. Where they, the Amalekites, were scattered over the countryside. What are they doing? Eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder. Right, right. You know what I learned about this verse? Don't throw your victory party in the third quarter. I mean, they're celebrating how much they've gotten of plunder. They're celebrating. They're not home yet. I mean, if you win on the opposing team's field with respect, walk, walk quietly to your bus, get on the bus. When you get to your home field, then you celebrate the victory. You know, don't celebrate your victory until the victory is assured. They're celebrating too soon. David catches up with them in verse 17. It ain't pretty. Verse 17, look carefully. Verse 17, verse 17. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day. It's 24 hours. Wait, 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 24 hours of arduous, perilous, hand-to-hand combat. Didn't God back in verse 8 promise success? Didn't God back in verse 8 promise victory? Why do they have to fight for a whole day? Why in the world does it? Have you not discovered it in the Bible? When God promises a victory, he still expects us to go out and fight the battles. Some of y'all, uh, you're not in this story. Why are you inserting yourself into it? Let me all read verse 8, verse 8. Get all complacent. Verse 8, God promised me success. God promised me a victory. I'll sit back in the holy hammock of passivity and let God my cabana boy. Uh, what ex- when exactly does a Christian say, God promised me success? For what again are you talking about? 
Bring me success. No, no. We partner proactively to receive the promises of God. God has called you to victory. Go out and take everything God has promised, my brothers. Fights. Take what? What is God supposedly promised? Again, what are you referring to? 24 hours. 20, I mean, that's exhausting. 24 hours. Hand-to-hand combat. But though the battle's exhausting, the victory is absolute. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. This verse. Whoa, God. God's so good. Look at it. Here's a God victory described in detail. David recovered. Everything. I love that. David recovered everything. Not most of it. Not what was left over. Not the, the fragments. Not the remnants. Not the second hand. No. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing. Nothing was missing. Young or old. Detailed. Boy or girl. Plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought can God really do that? Can God, can God restore so holistically? Though the enemy has stolen from you things that are precious, can God bring back in your life something better and more beautiful than you ever dreamt before? Can God work in his... Oh, no. Ah, uh, now we're just allegorizing this text now. I mean, so has the, the enemy stolen things from your life? You know, have you lost your marriage? Have you lost your job? You know, did you have a crazy boss too, like David? You know, don't worry. God can holistically restore everything the same way. So he's going to give you the victory. So go fight the battle. Unbelievable. Can his restorative work be that absolute and that complete? Only God, man. Only God. There's somebody not clapping. You don't understand how absolute the power of my God is, how pervasive and penetrating his power is, how it infused every dynamic of your life with his goodness. Wait. See... That's why I, I, I hate, I hate most Hollywood Jesus movies. See, most Hollywood Jesus... Yeah, that's funny. I have the same feeling towards most seeker-driven, quote, sermons. Jesus movies are not made by Christians. And number one, brothers, they find the most anemic guy to play Jesus. They find some sad... It's weird because, you know, the seeker-driven pastors, they find the most anemic texts and well even if they found a good one they completely bleed it so that there's no power in it at all they take christ out of it strip mine it for principles to apply and then read themselves into the biblical text it's the weirdest thing i'm sorry feminine dude weighs 93 pounds soaking wet put him in the little jesus bathrobe give him the miss america sash put him in flip-flops man of sorrow guy has zero charisma right Never, ever smiles. He's a sad, down dude. No way. Number one, Jesus was a man. What was his work? What was his work? What did he do for a living? Yeah, that's pre-Black and Decker, by the way. Hand-drilled everything. I mean, Jesus was buff. My king was buff, right? And he was a man. And then, you know, people loved his presence. People couldn't get enough. And he was charismatic. Jesus could smile. Je- he's funny. Kids wanted his presence. My Jesus, man. But what I hate the worst is ever they show a miracle, they never get it right. I'm telling you, I'm watching on cable, like five minutes. Again, it's really weird. You're complaining that the movies don't get miracles right. And it's weird because, you know, seeker-driven pastors never get Jesus right and the miracles right and the actual punchline of the stories of any of the Bible stories at all right because all of them are about him, Jesus. Five minutes, some, some lame Jesus movie. Here's, 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 here's anemic Jesus. And some poor guy comes to Jesus like, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, heal me, Jesus, heal me. And Jesus says, in my name, I heal you. 
uses like magic TV Jesus powers. And I'm, t- I'm watching this. After the healing, the man says, Thank you, Jesus. I am healed. Praise to Jesus. <laughs> I'm dead serious. <laughs> and this actor guy limps off. Limps off. When Jesus authentically touched your life, nobody limped. When he opened your eyes, you saw completely. When he raised them from the dead, they were alive. And so I love verse 18. The detail of the scripture goes to say, man, David got it all back. All the people he loved, all the things he loved, because that's the power, the restorative power of my God. Now, I gypped you. I cheated you. I totally agree. And I don't think you're going to bank up for that. Because I left out the best phrase in this whole story. The best phrase, because I, I would argue, I think probably the lowest point in David's whole life is verse 6. Verse 6, I mean, he lost the work, and he lost the wallet before, and he lost the wins before, but never had his own bros turned against him so violently that they wanted to kill him. I mean, verse 6 was bad, but I left out the second phrase in verse 6. It's the game changer. The whole thing hinges on this, the plot clots, on the latter part of verse 6. Here's the entirety of the verse once again, and look at this amazing thing David does. When he is down, this amazing thing, David was greatly distressed because his bros, the men were talking about stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But, but listen, guys, when life puts the smack down on you, when you feel like you've lost everything so badly, you cannot continue. You've got to throw on the brakes. Got to throw on the brakes, right? And look at that man in the mirror. Get honest with that man in the mirror and you do what David does. But David found strength in the Lord. In the Lord. Sometimes I blow by these little words in the Bible. Don't blow by every word is there with divine intent. David found his strength in his experience, in his past, in his resolve, in his courage, in his... No, no. He found his strength where? In... Say it with me. In the Lord. That is the game changer. It's not, your worth is not based on these things. These things are great things, but they're fluid. But if your worth is based on the fact that you are in the Lord, that you're someone you are in Christ, that changes it all. See, David said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Things are bleak. But I'm in relationship. And I'm in covenant. In fact, I'm in love with you, God. That's going to make the difference. In relationship, in covenant, in love. It's not my performance. It's this position in the Lord. It's not my pedigree. It's this promise God has spoken over me. It's not my activity. It's an anointing that God has placed on my life. That's going to make the difference. In fact, I like this same verse in the King James Version. I like the language better than the King James. Same verse, different translation. It says, and David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because of the souls of all the people were, was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. But ready? But David, one more time, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. Encur- Listen, brothers, sometimes you've got to encourage yourself because no one else will do it. You got- <laughs> My boss does not believe in me. Uh, cue sappy music. That's to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit has now shown up to do business with folks there in the church. My bros have abandoned me. My kids have no time for me. My wife, my, my wife is like Job's wife. Remember Job's wife? 
Man, the devil took everything Job valued except his wife, a nagging negative wife, left her. Job's like, what you take her, right? Her advice was, curse God and die. My colleagues criticize me. But God, you've made promises to me. And I'm in you. I'm in relationship with you. I'm in covenant with the covenant God. I'm in love with the God who loved me first. In fact, God, you've anointed me. See, what did, what did David, David had that moment in the mirror. David throws on the brakes, but he stops and thinks, but I'm, I'm in the Lord. Let me encourage and find my strength. What did David think about? The Bible does not say exactly what David thought about, meditated on, what he prayed about. I guarantee you, I know. I guarantee you, I know. I'll bet you, I'll bet you, Christian, I'll bet you, I know exactly what David, where his mind ran to. In fact, if I'm wrong, when we get to heaven and we meet David, if I'm wrong, in heaven, you can punch me in the face as hard as you want. It won't hurt because we're in heaven, but go ahead, punch me. And um, um, I guarantee you what David thought about when he was, things were so bleak, he'd lost everything. God, even my own men want to stone me. You know, you know what's funny is, is that his telling of the story omits so much information that you, there's... At the end of this, I don't even have any co- coherent idea of what actually happened in 1 Samuel chapter 30. So I'm going to fix that. We're going to read it. I know it's like toward the end of the sermon, but let's take a look at the story because when you take a look at the story, you can see it has nothing to do with self-worth and you feeling like, oh, I've lost my job and stuff like that. That's not what this passage is about. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag... On the third day, the Amalekites made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because of all the people were bitter in soul, each for his son and daughters, sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me an ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued and four hundred men, two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and for three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against what belonged to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, 
Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all of the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except four hundred young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his wives, his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had taken that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel that from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, at Ramoth, and Agev, in Jatir, and Eroror, at Shifmoth, and Estamoa, Rachal, and the cities of the uh, Jeremeliites, in the cities of the Kenites, the Hor- and in Hormah, in Bor, Ashan, and Atach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men roamed. Well, there you go. Pretty straightforward stuff. And, you know, what's fascinating is, is that um, David Hughes didn't have time in this sermon to read the passage. Hmm. Had he read the passage, he wouldn't have been able to actually create the false impression that this is about David's feelings of self-worth and stuff like that. And then you realize this isn't about you at all. Now, if you were to find typologically a connection back to Christ, you know, you can say, well, you know, in in a similar way, salvation is like this. And what I mean is this, is that... The, the 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 church is referred to as the bride of Christ, right? Well, in Scripture, we learn that when God created humanity, that Satan, he made a raid, if you would, against what belonged to God. And he took captive the entire human race, male, female, slave, free, husband, wife, all, and was dragging them off as booty to his kingdom. But Christ, the greater son of David, intervened. He intervened and pursued. And he caught Satan and he defeated him. How did he defeat him? Well, one Friday afternoon, he died on the cross for our sins to purchase and redeem us out of slavery, to propitiate the wrath of God against our sins, and to rescue us from the hands of the devil. 
And so, now who's the one who has the spoils? Well, the greater son of David does. You see, in, in a similar way, our salvation looks like this. It's really easy to preach Christ from a text like this, especially one about the greater son of David, you know, uh, the, uh, about David, about the greater son of David, who is Jesus Christ. So, you know, but we didn't get that. No, this is somehow some kind of psychological story about, oh, you know, uh, feelings of self-worth after you've lost your job and, and then had everything you had taken from you and all that kind of nonsense. David Hughes has no clue what this passage is about because he doesn't understand that it's about Jesus and it's not about you and it's not about me, at least not in the way that he's preached it. We continue, though, and we'll finish up this miserable sermon. But I remember a day 20 years ago plus when you sent a prophet to my father's house. When Samuel came to the house of Jesse, my my weird family, my weird dysfunctional family, he sent a prophet and he was going to anoint someone for greatness among the sons of Jesse. But my own father thought so little of my leadership potential, he left me outside with the sheep. My seven older brothers walked before the man of God and the spirit of God said, no, 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 and no. The man of God said, do you have another son? Is somebody missing? Embarrassed, sheepishly, pardon the pun, my shepherd father said, well, there's one, he's David, but he's not much to look at. He's the youngest, he's the run of the litter, it couldn't be him. And the man of God said, I will not eat or drink until I meet that boy. And my dad called me in. I came in the porch for our little country home, the screen door shut behind me. As soon as I walked in the door, the prophet stood and said, that's the man. That is God's man, and my God has a mission for you, and my God is going to anoint you for greatness. He has purposes and designs for your life, David. And th- Now, notice the way he's telling this story of David. You can just see it coming. It's going to then turn around and apply to all of the men there at CB Glades, that um, BYOB Sunday. And there before my disbelieving dad and my doubting brothers and my dysfunctional family, I knelt down and the man of God anointed me with oil for God's great purposes to be unleashed in my life. And I know here in Ziglag, it looks bad. And it was bad before, but this is worse. I've not just lost my work and my wins and my wallet and even my women. My bros have turned against me. But God, this will not be the finish of my story because you have made me a promise and I'm going to take strength on the fact that I am in the Lord. I'm in relationship and love and in covenant with you and no adversity of man can invalidate the anointing of God in my life. And the way he's telling the story, uh, just replace the word David with your name and uh, you'll be understanding exactly what he's doing with this text. It's, this is narcissistic eisegesis. Now, we were doing psychogesis earlier. Now, it's narcissistically reading yourself into the text. So here's my question. For a woman or a man, are you in a relationship with Jesus? If you don't know for certain and sure you're saved, here's your move. You bust this courageous move. We're going to be done in about two minutes. When we're done, I say amen. There'll be some nice people at the edge of the stage. They have a singular purpose to help you navigate your God decision. If you're here, not certain and sure you're saved. Navigate your God decision. Yet scripture says that um, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. 
Um, John chapter 1 makes it clear that we're not born of human decision. Um, This is not something that uh, we muster up within ourselves. And at the same time, um, have people been confronted with their sins? Nope, they haven't. Um, They have not been confronted with their sins. Have they heard about their crucified and risen Savior who propitiated the wrath of God and atoned for their sins through his sacrifice, his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Have we heard anything about the one who was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the one who, on whom the Lord has laid our iniquities and punished? Nope, we haven't heard anything like that. So we haven't heard the gospel. These people haven't heard about repentance and the forgiveness of sins or even their need to. What would make, why on earth should we believe that anybody who prays a prayer in this particular context, it's not even going to be the sinner's prayer, what's going to be the purpose-driven prayer or the prayer of self-worth? Um, how is that supposed to save somebody and make them a Christian? You're saved on your way for heaven. I want you to make your way to the front. It's going to take guts, but you are courageous. You say to your friends, I need a, I need a moment. I need a moment. Maybe you're away from the man cave. I don't know. I need a moment. And I'm going to come and give my heart to Christ. And the service is done. Those folks will take 10 minutes in God's word. And you'll walk out of here knowing things are cool between you and your heavenly father. But for the men of the house, as a man of God, I want to anoint you for greatness. I want every man in this house. Really, you're going to anoint them for greatness. Well, at least you weren't going to do something silly like, you know, blessing their motorcycles. No, no, you're just going to anoint them for greatness. Like, that's any better. House right now, every man in this house, would you please quietly just stand to your feet? No one leaving. Every man, please stand to your feet. And as God's messenger this day, based on the promises of God, I want to speak words of anointing over you. And my prayer is your heart would be ready and receptive to receive everything God has for you. Every man, every age, go ahead and stand up. Every man, every age, stand up. Every man. Man, this is not going to end well. Every man, every age. Young men as well. Come on, young guns. Stand up. Stand up. Listen with your heart. No, I usually listen with my ears. Thank you. My heart has no ability to hear things. The God of heaven. The God of scripture. The Christ of the cross. The lying king who defeated death with the resurrection roar. Anoints you right now by his power. He anoints you for greatness. He has a customized mission for your life. <sighs> Really, you think Jesus wants you to do this, and you're doing this by his authority. I think this is blasphemy. It is my prayer for you. You'll pursue that mission with great passion. He will well up. Yeah, this is the purpose-driven gospel. This isn't a biblical gospel. It's something different, but, oh, it's it, it scratches itching ears and sure is popular and is able to fill large buildings. Up in you a holy resolve. You refuse to live a life that is mundane, unspecial. You're not going to limp through life. But let- I refuse to live a life that's mundane and unspecial. Oh, yeah, that's what Christianity is about. This is preposterous. Let Jesus and his power and grace permeate every arena of your life. And you will not define yourself by these criteria, but define yourself by the words that God has spoken over you. It's greatness in store for you, my brother. Yeah, I don't think so. Now, guess what? The enemy... Yeah, what does Scripture say? The one who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Hmm? The devil's not just going to sit back and watch this unfold in your life. He will come up hard... Against- yeah, the, God, the devil's going to come against you, and he'll try to make you live an unspecial life. Oh, that terrible devil. ...against you. 
He will try to steal away from you everything and everyone you hold precious. But if you suffer a season of setback, if you have a, a zigzag chapter in your life, you recognize the greatness of God cannot be invalidated by the adversity of man. He has this plan for you. Again, what verses are you? Oh, yeah, you're not. This isn't taught anywhere in the Bible. And though hell would come against you, no device of man, no demon of hell can stop God from giving you everything, everything, everything. My king commands for you. I anoint Do I get time off of purgatory for reviewing this sermon? Anoint you in Jesus' name as our men loudly say. Father God. All right, done. Well, that was a travesty. Um, wow. Did we really hear anything about what Jesus has done? No, not at all. We read ourselves into the text. That's what we ended up doing. When you read yourself into the text, you know what you end up doing? You read Jesus out of it, and then you miss the whole point of what the text is really about. <sighs> clueless. Absolutely clueless. So today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Well, we heard the Pope offering indulgences and time off of purgatory and the forgiveness of sins if you follow him on Twitter. Of course, only if you're truly contrite. Um, and then we heard uh, Joshua Mills um, talking about, I'm not sure what, um, but it had something to do with <laughs> a verse from the story of the dedication of the temple by Solomon in Jerusalem. And then we heard that uh, that pastrix, that emergent pastrix, uh, say that Jesus never claimed his mother was a virgin and, and Jesus never told us to stand firm. And then we have this stuff, you know, uh, you're destined for greatness and don't settle for a life of mediocrity and and all that kind of nonsense. And then reading about you know how David's self-worth was really challenged when during this Ziklag chapter in his life. And what do the, all of these disparate stories have in common? The answer is this, complete and utter cluelessness. It's a false Jesus. It's a false gospel. It's a false spirit. It's a false message. It isn't the truth. How do you spot a false teacher? Jesus said, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Did we hear any good fruit from the Pope? No. Did we hear any good fruit from Joshua Mills? No. How about that emergent pastrix who said Jesus never said his mother was a virgin? No. Didn't hear any good fruit from her either. Only bad fruit from all of them. How about any good fruit from David Hughes? No, not any. And what did Scripture say? What did that passage of Scripture say that I read at the beginning of the program today from Second Corinthians chapter 11? Well, it said that the agents of the devil, um, the false, uh, false apostles, false teachers, that they, um, there's, there's, that they are deceitful workmen, disguising themselves disguising themselves as apostles and teachers of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, though it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>